Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When he was nine years old in 1872, Black Elk, a member of the Lakota tribe, had a near-death vision in which he was called to save not only his people, but all of humanity. For the rest of his life, Black Elk's vision haunted and inspired him as he took part in many of the seminal confrontations between the Lakota and the U.S. government, including those at Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee. My guest today is the author of a biography of this native holy man. His name is Joe Jackson, and his book is Black Elk, The Life of an American Visionary. We begin our conversation with the background of the Sioux or Lakota Indians, including how the introduction of the horse turned them into formidable hunters and warriors and how their spirituality influenced their warfare. Joe then introduces to Black Elk and unfolds the vision that he had as a boy, which would lead him to follow in his family's footsteps by becoming a medicine man and guide him for the rest of his life. We then take detours into the seminal battles between the U.S. government and the Lakota that Black Elk witnessed firsthand, as well as the sun dance and ghost dance rituals, which helped catalyze them. Joe then explains why Black Elk converted to Catholicism after the Indian Wars and how he fused Lakota spirituality with his newfound faith. We then discuss why Black Elk decided to tell his vision to a white poet named John Neidhart and the cultural influence the resulting book, Black Elk Speaks, had on the West in the 20th century. We enter conversation discussing whether Black Elk ever felt he fulfilled his vision. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash Black Elk. All right, Joe Jackson, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So you're the author of Black Elk, The Life of an American Visionary, and this is a biography of a famous Lakota holy man, prophet, medicine man, Black Elk. I'm curious, what led you down the path to to writing this biography? Well, I had written a book prior to this about the air race that made Charles Lindbergh famous, and, and one of the things that I discovered was that the process by which this was in the 1920s, the process by which Americans discovered and created and then destroyed secular holy men, you know, the momentary media saints. And that made me start to think, what does it really mean for a society or a group of people to call somebody holy? What, is, what does holy really mean? And I first thought of doing a biography of, of the Catholic writer Thomas Merton, but there had just been a biography written of him well, about five years ago or something like that. Then I started thinking about Black Elk because I remembered that I remember two things. One, Black Elk Speaks was one of my favorite books when I was in either high school or college. And secondly, at the turn of the 20th and 21st centuries, there was this colloquium of, of college theologians, and they were asked, who do you think was the American's premier holy man of the 20th century? And the majority said, Black Elk. And I thought, well, now that's really interesting because this is from a country that tried to you know, wipe out his his kind of religion too. And then when I was researching the book, I didn't know this at the time, but then when I first started researching the idea, I found out that there was a move to turn Black Elk into a Catholic saint. And that, that made it even more interesting because once again, at the time, it was the Catholics who tried to stamp out Black Elk's type of religion. So there are a lot of different things going on, a lot of different trails I could go down. It seemed like a perfect book to work on. Well, so this is a biography of Black Elk, but you, it's also a history or biography of the Lakota. So let's start there. For a big picture overview for people who aren't familiar with the, the Lakota Plains Indians, where were they from originally? Because we know them for being on the plains, like the Dakotas or whatever. Right. I don't think they were there originally. How'd they end up there? And uh, we'll start from there. Well, the first place they were 
at least recorded in White Histories, was in Michigan or around Michigan, around the Great Lakes. And they were forced out by, you know, white settler pressure. And they started moving across the plains. Some state of Michigan, others Others moved across the northern plains, what's now like Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota. And, but at that time when that happened, they were still afoot. They weren't really horse soldiers like they became famous for being. And so, and so it was a slow process of moving west. And there were three or four clans. The most famous of the clans were Black Elks, which were the Oglala, Lakota. And that was also the clan of Crazy Horse. And the other clan, which was became quite famous, was Sitting Bull's clan, which was the Hunk Papa. And so they moved west until they came to the Dakotas. Then they kind of started separating out into, you know, each clan had its kind of territory. Sitting Bull's clan was in the northernmost of the United States in what is now North Dakota. And at least among the Lakota, the southernmost clan were Black Elks, who are down right around where the Black Hills are of South Dakota today. And for people, I mean, I think it's important to note, the Lakota are also known as the Sioux. So yeah. that can be confusing. People like the Sioux, Lakota, those are different tribes. No, it's the, the same tribe. Right. Yeah, the Sioux was, the Sioux was pretty much, it was a uh, bastard. The, the name Sioux is a bastardization of a French word for them. And so, but their name for themselves was always the Lakota. Lakota. So you mentioned they weren't, they're famous for being Plains horse warriors, cavalry, Plains warriors, but they always didn't have the horse. When did they, when were they introduced to the horse? When did they start incorporating that into their culture? Nobody's really sure about that, but you know, the, the horse culture spread up from the South. There were uh, Spanish horses that escaped and bred. And then the Comanches were among the first American tribes to become really proficient horsemen. Over time, it spread north. They think that the Lakota discovered the horse and started riding sometime between 1750 and 1820. There were Lakota historians. They would kind of like draw pictographs on these deerskins. And the first time that the Lakota were were recorded to have caught a horse was to caught or have stolen a horse was 1801. Somewhere between 1801 and 1820, the um, they became quite proficient. And and how did it change their culture? Oh, completely. I mean, they were they were afoot. So before then, so you know, they were pretty much at the mercy of the elements. And then all of a sudden, they started riding horses. They could run down the the buffalo. They had a kind of natural recklessness and bravery to them as they became more proficient hunters. Then they became warriors. And because they were so good, so daring, and so reckless, they became some of the you know most feared or at least the most successful warriors on the northern plains. As they moved west towards the Black Hills and then even farther west towards the Rockies, they would come up against other tribes like the Crow, who had been in, you know, these this really kind of paradise of hunting grounds over over in Wyoming for a long time, and they would fight for years over the hunting ground. And the reason they were s- such a feared martial society was because they were so good on their horses. And there was also a very highly spiritual component to their warrior culture as well. Correct? Very much so. 
when you were a young man and you were going to become an adult, you would go through a vision quest. You would fast, you would go out into the hills, you would starve yourself, you would go into a sweat lodge, and you would you would seek a vision. And since you know the highest attainable position or the highest attainable life for a young man was to be a warrior, then you were seeking a vision that had something to do with your prowess as a warrior. And many times the visions that you that you were given from the gods would tell you what you would have to do before battle or how what kind of life you would have to lead in order to be a pure warrior. And they basically were a code of conduct either for your life or for your conduct right before the battle. So it was a very important thing. Religion and spirituality among the Oglala were were very tied up in in battle and hunting. And hunting was a kind of battle in itself. And we'll talk about how that connection between spirituality and warfare, I mean, that's eventually what led up to you know, Wounded Knee and some of these, the, the conflicts between the government and the, the Lakota. So uh, we kind of lead up, we talked about what the, the Lakota, where are they from, their culture, the development of the, the warrior culture they had. Let's talk about what was the state of U.S. government and Lakota relations at the time of Black Elk's birth and childhood. So Black Elk was born around, I don't remember exactly, but around 18, I think it was 1863. The Lakota considered the area from the Black Hill, well, the, the Northern Plains, what we call the Northern Plains today, but then especially west past the Black Hills to the up to the to the Rockies, they considered that a, a great hunting ground. I mean, it was there was a lot of game up there, and there was um, it was great camping, and it was just a, it was just an easier life for them. And around this time, gold was discovered in Montana. There were all of these these trails west fr- that went through the center of the United States, but then mine started going north, and they started. They started invading there, the Dakota's hunting ground, and that led to a war. That led to a war that was called Red Clouds War, where there were a number of American U.S. Army forts along this northern trail, and the Indians attacked these forts incessantly. They basically shut down this this trail that the miners were using, and the Indians eventually, after massacring a bunch of soldiers in a place outside of Sheridan, Wyoming, called the Fetterman Massacre, and besieging these forts for a long time, the Sioux won the only, they won what was called Red Clouds War. It was the only war that the Native Americans were acknowledged as winning in U.S. history. So he was born during this. His father fought at that massacre that I was talking about. He was badly wounded. He would always be kind of lame. Red Cloud's War ended around, I don't know, 1865, 1866, 1867, something like that. And from then until around the time of the Custer Massacre, there was relative peace. There were, there were skirmishes, but there was relative peace. And there were negotiations for land, you know, large tracts of land belonging to the Indians and the Indians alone, which was over time being invaded by white miners again. Black Elk was born in a, in a time of war, but his first 10 years, 10, 11, 12 years, most of that was a time of peace. It was also during this time you, you saw the rise of these great chiefs that we know today, right. Sitting Bull oh, yeah. and Crazy Horse. And I mean, 
Crazy Horse would fight would fight other tribes, but he would also, I mean, during Red Cloud's War, we don't really see Sitting Bull during Red Cloud's War. That's that's kind of too far south for Sitting Bull. But we do start to see Crazy Horse come into ascendance during Red Cloud's War. I mean, he was a he was um because of his success as a um as a warrior and also as a tactician, he was always very good at tactics. He rose in prominence as one of Red Cloud's major lieutenants during during that war. And you know, speaking of that connection between spirituality and war, like Crazy Horse had visions. Like I, I guess they had thunder visions. Like he had like the God speak to him and that he was going to lead his people against the whites. As long as he adhered to certain standards as delineated in his visions, then he would never be touched by a bullet and he would lead his people in war. And, and he was this holy man of, of, of war, this kind of like holy madman. I mean, he'd just charge straight into, into the line of bullets or he'd charge at opposing tribe and he would uh, wreak havoc and come out the other end unscathed. He had many, many followers. There were, there were lots of young men, young warriors who really respected Crazy Horse. Black Elk was the younger cousin of Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse was actually the second cousin to Black Elk. So as Black Elk was growing up, Crazy Horse was right there. He was like, you know, his mentor in a way. And Crazy Horse started to pay a little bit more attention to Black Elk after Black Elk seemed to be touched by the gods in some way that not everybody really understood at first. Well, let's talk about that. And particularly Black Elk's immediate family because it seems like because of his his family lineage, he was destined to become a great medicine man. Yeah, I mean the the family business was being a medicine man, being a holy man, and there were there were two types of holy men. There were the ones who had visions and were in touch with the gods, and there were the ones who healed. It was almost like in a way, it was like medical school. I mean, you could go on and you could try to have you could try to be both, and in time, that's what our black elk was. He he was both a spiritual leader, a holy man who was in touch with the gods, but he also was a healer. At a very early age, he started hearing voices, which, and that eventually turned into a near-death vision that he had when he was just nine years old. And this, this is the moment, this is like the seminal thing for Black Elk that would guide him for the rest of his life and would influence his decisions he made. So walk us through that vision, like how did it start and then like what did he see in it? Okay, so he, like you said, he had he would be a you know just a a little kid, and he'd be out on the plains playing, and all of a sudden someone would speak to him, and he'd look around, and nobody was there. Even though culturally the Lakota supported visitation from the gods a lot more than white culture does. I mean, if you heard voices, you weren't necessarily, you know, immediately sent off to the psychiatrist. At the same time, it would appear that the Lakota were were fairly cautious about it. I mean, a lot of people could fake that. They didn't want to have fake holy men around. So Black Elk, when he was younger, he kind of hid this from his family. He didn't want his family to think he was crazy. And then when he was nine, they were, his family was traveling west to go to a annual confluence of all the tribes over in in the uh, over in the Black Hills and he fell into a coma he got really sick and he fell into a coma first his legs gave out and then he had an extremely high fever and you know you can't really tell what 
people, historically what people fall ill of, but it did kind of seem like he had childhood meningitis or something like that. I mean, he came really close to death. And for nine days, he was in a coma. And during those nine days when he was in a coma, he had this vision in which he was lifted up into the clouds where the spirits were, the grandfathers. They were basically just like, you know, the Catholic Church has a trinity. There were six grandfathers. And he was given a vision that if he went on this quest and overcame the dangers, then he would be given powers and tools that would that would save his people from the coming white encroachment. And by this time, we're talking like the early 1870s. By this time, it was pretty evident to all of the Lakota that they were going to be overrun by white culture, that they were going to lose their land, and it was a um, a coming apocalypse. And so everybody was pretty much worried. So he went off on this quest. is very much a kind of Joseph Campbell type of hero quest. And he comes back with these powers and the the grandfathers bring him to the, you know, they're, they're kind of the cloud lodges. He has this giant vision of millions of horses dancing in front of him. He has these visions of what he must do to save his people from, from the whites. But a complicating matter is also that his powers are not just for the Lakota, it's for all people. And in time, he would come to um, think, well, that means everybody, even the enemy. But he didn't really understand that when he was when he was nine. He comes out of his of his coma, and from the time that he is nine years old until he is in his twenties, eighteen eighteen ninety, when wounded knee takes place, he feels that it is his it is his responsibility to save his people. After he had his vision, did he tell anybody about it, or did he keep it to himself? He kept it. To himself until after the the Custer massacre in 1876, around 1877, 1878, 1879, he began to have these these dreams again. He began to hear these voices again, and they were more threatening. Now it's like now is the time you have to do what you have to do, and he always felt that if he did not do what the gods told him to do, that he'd be wiped out, that he would be annihilated. But he didn't know what to do. And he just grew more and more panicked until finally he, he had a huge panic attack and his parents took him to some, to some medicine men, some holy men within the tribe. It was like a psychiatric session. I mean, he was a group psychiatric session. I mean, he told them about his dreams. He told them about his vision and they listened and they were quite impressed because in a way his vision had, in a very sophisticated way for one so young, his vision encompassed a lot of Lakota cosmology. And they basically said that you've got to somehow perform your, your vision to the tribe. You've got to prove yourself as a holy man. That was when he publicly added himself as somebody who had these visions. And that's when he like he basically replicated the horse dance that he saw in his vision. He replicated the horse dance, and um, it was a huge success. And because it was so successful, he was honored. And because it was so successful, he had a lot more confidence in his own abilities. 
that was when, you know, he started performing other visions that he might have had, minor visions that he might have had. It was also when he started to start to teach himself how to be a healer as well. Was this in this uh, replication, this when he did his horse dance. This was after Bighorn, correct? Little Bighorn. This was after Bighorn. This is, I think it was around 1878 or 1879 when he replicated the the horse vision. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, let's backtrack a little bit and go back to Battle of Little Bighorn because Black Elk was there. And as I said earlier, as we talked about earlier, there's this connection between spirituality and, and warrior culture in Lakota. And I think a lot of, you know, most, most Americans know about the Battle of Little Bighorn or Custer's Last Stand. But what role, what they don't know is like what led up to that and what led up to it, like part of the contributing factor to that was Lakota spirituality, particularly around the Sundance ritual. So can you walk us through the lead up to the Battle of Little Bighorn, particularly in regards to the Sundance? Well, what happened was that after Red Cloud won his war, the American government said, there's this huge swath of the Northern Plains that's, that belongs to you all, the Lakota. We're not going to invade this. But in 1875, George Custer led a, a scientific and military expedition into the Black Hills, which was a very holy place for the, for the Lakota. I mean, they considered that that's where they got their lodge poles, where they hunted. That's where they, that's where the spirits were thought to reside. And so Custer came with a huge, huge force of men and a huge force of like a wagon train and, and scientists and everything. And they discovered gold, not a lot of gold, but they discovered gold. Immediately, white gold miners flooded into the area. And then Deadwood is now kind of like, you know, what was the main gold town you can still see today. The U.S. government had, had reneged on its treaty, which the Indians considered sacred. And they were really upset about this. And that proved to them the very thing that they had been worrying about all these years, which was that that the whites were going to overrun their culture and they're going to wipe them out. And so in 1876, there was a huge conclave and Sundance that was it was called to the west towards where the little bighorn was. This was the moment when when Sitting Bull becomes really important in American history because Sitting Bull's clan was the Hunk Papa. And the Hunk Papa had this huge Sundance. And a Sundance was basically a, a way of torturing yourself into having, having visions. And Sitting Bull had a vision in which he saw two giant waves of approaching forces, like two big clouds meeting head on. There was a battle, and then American soldiers in uniforms started falling to the ground head first, which meant that they were killed. And so Sitting Bull basically prophesied a huge battle between the U.S. Army and the, um, and the Indians. And, and there were thousands of Indians who had come together for this, for this conclave. And they kept moving west towards the Rockies, and they eventually camped over at the Little Bighorn. At the same time, the United States government had said, all have to live on reservations, and if you're not on a reservation, we're going to hunt you down. And so there was a three-pronged hunt to find this huge number of Indians. George Custer and his small band of men found them first, and they were wiped out. And that was like, I don't know, June 26, 1876, or something like that. I mean, and can you walk us through the Sundance? Because it's it's a really intense ritual. I mean, it starts off the war. They, they look at they they stare at the sun. I mean, they they literally look at the sun with their own with their 
blind eyes, basically. And then what goes on after that? There are basically four stages of the Sundance, which is basically four days of the Sundance, at least as it was, at least it, as it was practiced in this best known Sundance of sitting bulls before the little bighorn. You fasted, you were in a sweat lodge, you, you know, there was sage that was burning around you. And then on each of the successive days, you went through these ordeals, which finally culminated on the fourth day with the most famous ordeal, which was the one where a medicine man would slice the muscles in your pectorals and one on each side, and he would insert a rod through through the slice. The rod would be attached by leather thongs to the top of this this tree. For that day, you and you were also given this long rod or stick that you held on to. And for that day, you tried to pull yourself loose from the pole. Many times you would see sun dancers who had multiple scars over their lives where they had pulled themselves loose. And while you were doing this, while you were dancing, while you were trying to pull yourself loose, you would supposedly stare into the sun. Now, later, some informants would say that you didn't necessarily stare straight into the sun because you would have gone blind, but you would stare into a spot below the sun, but it was close enough to the rays of the sun that you were, you know, pretty much, pretty much blinded for the day. And between the pain and the fasting and staring at the sun, getting loose from the pole or not, there was a lot of pain and suffering there and pretty dramatic visions would come out of that. And the other thing it also did is there were a lot of people who were invited to these sun dances who weren't part of the uh, Lakota. They were amazed by the by the extent of suffering that these guys went through. And so in a way, it was also kind of a public demonstration of how tough the the Lakota were, what 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 badasses they were. And I mean, it was supposedly a, a, a pretty amazing spectacle. And while you were doing that, I mean there were a lot of people that I mean the tribes would sit around and watch. So it was a it was a very public ritual of suffering. And it, I think one of the aftermaths of the Battle of Little Bighorn, you know, the government, this is like when the government started, you know, making this idea of like, we got to start killing the Indian inside of the Indian. And one right. of the, one of the ways they did that is, you know, since they saw the, the connection between the Sundance and the Battle of Little Bighorn, the U.S. government started basically trying to prevent Sundances from happening after that point. Right. Yeah, they outlawed a lot of dances like that. I mean, later on, we'll see another dance called the Ghost Dance, which was nowhere near as violently as inclined as the as the Sun Dance was, but it was a dance. It was an Indian dance, and the American government and the American settlers feared it, especially since the Lakota were the ones who were, who were doing it. Basically, what happened was that the U.S. Army hunted them down and forced the all the Indians pretty much into slowly into the reservations. And so from 1876 until the early 1880s, you've got the remainders of the Indian tribes going into reservations. And once the the tribes were in the reservations and they could easily control and outlaw these rituals. And the other thing that happened was that each of the, at least in the early days, 
each of these reservations were, even though the government controlled it, they were really kind of run by different religious sects. And so, you know, one one reservation somewhere might be might be run by the Episcopalians, somewhere else it might be by the Presbyterians. And where Black Elk lived, it was the largest, it still is the largest reservation in the United States, and that was run by the Catholics. And the Catholics kind of impressed the Indians because, um, the Lakota, because they, they seem to have a certain magic to themselves, you know, the robes and the big crosses and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, at that time, they really tried to stamp out the Indian beliefs. And so we're talking, we're talking the 1880s is when they were really trying to stamp out the Indian beliefs. So Little Bighorn happens. Black Elk's family they end up on the reservation. They didn't. They went to Canada for a little bit, but they ended up in, right. back on the reservation. During this time, Black Elk was recognized basically publicly by his people as a holy man. Right. But then he goes on. We kind of. I mean, this is kind of an interesting detour in his life. He he connects with Wild Bill Cody, right. and joins him on his Wild West circus show that went to go see the Queen of England. Yeah, yeah, I know. And that was kind of a road trip for all these for all these young guys. I mean, by now Black Elk would have been in his early 20s. Around 1886 or so, Cody had already been in theater. He had a Wild West plays on the Chicago stage. And he kind of dreamed up the idea of these traveling Wild West shows. I mean, they were like circuses on on horseback. And the first couple of years, they didn't really do that well. But then he began to understand that what people were really interested in were the were the Indians. And the first Indians that he hired when he went down to Louisiana were the Pawnee. But over time, he put out this casting call to the different reservations saying, if you ride with me on these Buffalo Bill Wild West shows, I'll take you, you know, you'll go around the United States, you'll get paid. If you're married, your wife will get paid about half of what you get paid or maybe a quarter. And you'll, in, you know, it's, it's, it's a road trip and you're, you're making money at the time when there weren't a whole lot of jobs to be held on reservations. So around 1886 or 1887, Buffalo Bill pretty much comes to Pine Ridge where the Oglala were and says, you know, we're hiring actors, Indian actors for the Wild West show. And Black Elk wasn't sure he wanted to join up because, you know, he was a healer and his in the reservation during what was called the reservation period, children are dying and it was um, a tough time. But Black Elk was starting to think, well, the Indian ways aren't saving my people. Maybe I should see why the whites are so powerful. He went east with his friends on the Buffalo Bill tour, and he went to Madison Square Gardens, and he really, he really enjoyed it. And while he was in Madison Square Gardens, Buffalo Bill swung a deal with Great Britain. I mean, Queen Victoria was having her 50th anniversary, and so it was the Golden Jubilee, I think I remember it being. And, and so they went from Madison Square Gardens over to England, and he rode as one of the Indians. And in London, and then he was a very good dancer because, you know, as a, as a holy man, as a medicine man, you have to be able to dance. And so he was one of several Lakota performers who danced before the queen. And that was, that was kind of a charming moment in the, um, in Black Elk Speaks because he says something like, you know, she was short and pudgy, but she was very nice and she grabbed my hand and she said, you know, you, you said nice things to him. And so it was, uh, it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of a really nice section in, in Black Elk Speaks. When he makes it back to America, 
things are starting to change again on the reservation amongst the Lakota. And there was this movement you referred to earlier, this ghost dance movement. What was the impetus behind the ghost dance movement? What was its purpose, et cetera? Well, the ghost dance movement was there had there had actually been there were actually two waves of the ghost dance movement in the in the Rockies down around Nevada around I don't know about 1888 or something like that. There was a, a first wave, and it was basically that if you religiously dance this this dance, the the dancers will be chosen and they will be delivered away from from this veil of tears, kind of like the rapture in, in Protestant theology. And then it kind of died for a little while. And then around 1890, the ghost dance began to spread east along the northern plains. And a lot of tribes started dancing. And basically, it was a long dance and it was an endurance dance. And as you danced, you know you didn't you, you, you didn't have anything to drink or eat, and you were you were fasting. And as you were dancing, if you fainted from exhaustion, then you were dragged out of the line, and you would have a vision, and it became, you know, kind of a public spectacle, a, a public religious spiritual spectacle. And there was a, there was this kind of group cohesiveness. There was this idea that sometime in spring 1891, if the ghost dancers adhered religiously to the strictures of the ghost dance, that all the enemies would be killed and only the Indians would survive. And those family members, those Indians who had been killed by the whites in the past, would come back. And so it's very much like white millennial movements. I mean, you know, such and such a day, the end of the world is going to come, and the only ones who are going to survive are the chosen. It's almost exactly the same. And in many ways, this, it, was, it was a millennial movement, and in many ways, it had a lot of hallmarks of the kind of Christianity that, that Indians all over the plains had been learning during the reservation period, which, once again, like I said, was the 1880s. In most places, nothing really happened. I mean, the agents in charge of the of the reservations they said, "Let them dance." I mean, it's it's not a it's not a violent movement. But people were scared of the Sioux because of what happened at the Little Bighorn. And so, when the ghost dance reached the Sioux, the U.S. Army moved in. And then part of the ghost dance was this idea of a ghost shirt, right? That you could wear this shirt yeah. that would protect you from bullet and blade. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, I mean, it, it was supposed to be an impervious shirt. It was a holy shirt, and if you wore this shirt, then you were protected. And according to Black Elk, I mean, a lot of he spent a lot of time making these shirts. You would kind of like, you know, say a prayer over them and paint symbols on them and, and that kind of stuff. It's interesting, the reservation right to the east of Pine Ridge called the Rosebud Reservation, and there is a... Um, there is a Lakota museum in the the Catholic Church there, and there is a ghost dance shirt that's still been preserved. And it's a it's a long kind of loose shirt with many times it'll have a like a painting of an eagle eagle or a thunderbird or something like that on it. I mean, they're always they're I mean they're faded by now, but they're kind of elaborate and always and have a lot of ribbons and they're kind of beautiful. And and you said even though Black Elk took part in the ghost dance movement, making the ghost shirts and doing some of the dances like the way he describes it in black elk speak he was kind of ambivalent about the ghost dance though. right yeah he wasn't really sure about it because i mean there had been different movements and remember even by then i mean he's still in his early 20s even by then he still believes that somehow 
he's going to you know find the key to his vision he's going to he's going to understand he never really completely understood his vision and so he kept going over it and going over it and trying to figure out how can i make this right how what is the secret what do i have to do to make my vision come true and to save my people and he wasn't really sure that that the ghost dance was in line with his vision but then he, at the invitation of one of his friends or one of his family members, he went down to the um, to a ghost dance, probably about 10 or 12 miles south of where he lived. And it was in this area called Wounded Knee. And he watched this ghost dance. And there were a lot of similarities between his, between his vision and the ghost dance as it was being danced. And so he thought, well, maybe it's the same thing. And that's when he joined. And you mentioned that and th- when they first started doing the ghost dance, the in- agents were like, yeah, just let them do it. But then this, like the Sundance, this led up to another conflict between the, the Lakota and the, the U.S. Army. Yeah, it was really m- more of a massacre, un- unlike the Little Bighorn. There were a number of ghost dancers, including up on Sitting Bull's Northern Reservation. And the U.S. Army and the government were very afraid of them, and they started moving the they started moving the army in, and Sitting Bull had a number of ghost dances up where he was, and there was a confrontation, and he was killed. His people started moving south, and they collected some other Sioux as they started moving south. And the U.S. Army knew about this, and they were, they didn't, you know, it's hard to find people on the plains, and so the army was mobilized around Pine Ridge to try to catch these refugee ghost dancers and to, and to stop the ghost dancing. By the time that, that this band came into Pine Ridge, they were led by this, this old chief by the name of Bigfoot. They were, it was during the winter, it was in December 1890, they were starving, they were frostbitten, they were in really bad shape, and they turned themselves into this column of U.S. troops, and they were brought to this camp down at the down at Wounded Knee, the same place where Black Elk had encountered his first ghost dance, and they were given food, and they were given shelter, and then the next day, the soldiers lined up around them and demanded their their rifles, and the young men didn't want to give away their rifles, and shooting started in the very beginning of the battle. The Indians and and the soldiers pretty much gave as as well as they took. I mean, the casualties were just about even, but the army also had what was called a Hotchkiss gun, which was a kind of small mountain cannon. It had two or three of those that it had brought along. It was up on this hill to the north of where the fight was taking place, and they started shooting down into the... The Indians started running after the first wave of battle, and they, the Indians started running south, and the Hotchkiss guns started firing, and that's where when it became a, a massacre, and that's when children, women and children began to be killed. And in the latter stages of that, I mean, that's not very far from where Black Elk, by now he was back from, from London, and they heard the shooting, and that's where Black Elk grabs a horse, and he starts to ride towards the sound of the shooting, and he collects a lot of young men behind him, and they try to save some of the refugees, some of the women, and some of the children. And that's 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 the part of Wounded Knee, the Battle of Wounded Knee that you see in Black Elk Speaks. He arrives at the end with other Lakota men to try to save the people being killed. 
And I'm sure his vision was going on in his mind. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, how do I, you know, why can't I, how has this happened? Why have I failed? Why did I allow this to, to happen? It must be because I never understood my vision well enough. You know, and you have this famous passage where, you know, he sees these, he sees them. You know, all these women and children, you know, dead or dying in heaps over to the side. And it was like, it was the end of a dream. It was a beautiful dream, but it was all, you know, all lying in blood in the snow and the dust. And that's pretty much where Black Elk speaks. The book ends. That's not where Black Elk's story ends. Wounded Knee is pretty much thought of as the very last battle between the U.S. Army and the Native Americans in uh, U.S. history. There's actually one or two little skirmishes after that, but that was the last big campaign. Well, and after this, what happens to, to Black Elk? What does he do? Well, he goes just kind of existential limbo. I mean, we don't hear anything of, of him in 1891. Um, 1892, you start to hear of him again. He's, I mean, lots, lots of people, especially kids, are dying from white diseases. I mean, there's, there's a epidemic of whooping cough, which is just killing, and measles, but especially whooping cough, which is killing off young Lakota. And so for the 1890s, he is trying to save his people with his, his healing. And he also gets married around to his first wife and has three children around 1893. From 1893 until about 1903 or 1904, he, um, he tries to save his people, people as a healer, but his wife dies until two of his children die and his mother dies and his dad dies. And all these people that he knows are dying and they're dying from diseases and he's getting more and more depressed. He's mo- thinking more and more, I failed my people. Our old beliefs, they don't have the power of the white beliefs. What can I do? And then in 1904, he has a, a confrontation with a Catholic priest. And many times what would happen during this period, this was a period of religious transition for the Lakota. I mean, individual Lakota would think, do I want to be Catholic? Do I want to stay the same as I, you know, keep the old ways? And a family member would die. And the family would call in both the Catholic priests and the, the native priests as, I guess, a way of hedging their bets. And Black Elk kind of came face to face with one of these, um, with one of these priests. It wasn't the first time he came face to face with one of these priests, but and he was known by these priests. He was known as a, a powerful and respected medicine man. And if they could convert him to Catholicism, that would be a, a coup for them. And Black Elk was depressed because his children had died and his wife had died and he had a really bad ulcer and he was really sick. And sometime in 1904, he just gives up and he's, he waits outside after the priest has finished giving last rites. And the priest comes up to him and says, you look pretty bad. Let me take you to the monastery. And I'm fixed up. He has a um, operation for an ulcer, and he becomes a converted Catholic. He's a strong, strong, strong Catholic. From 1904 to 1916, he goes around the United States converting other Indians in, in other tribes and up into Canada. And supposedly, he converted 400 Native Americans in both Canada and the United States to Catholicism more than any other Native American and that's why the Catholic Church is looking into turning him into a saint right now. 
But that all ended in 1916. He stopped traveling in 1916. Somewhere between 1916 and 1930, he didn't stop being a Catholic, but he started practicing the old ways again. So he was kind of like a combination of both. He was a combination Catholic and an old holy man. And I mean, it seems like what he was trying to do was trying to figure out his vision. Like that was the thing that was like, he, he, he converted to Catholicism because it thought maybe there's something there that I can take that helped me like unlock the key to understanding my, my vision that I had. Right. It was always, it was always about the vision. He always believed that the vision was held the key to saving his people. And actually just, you know, as he, as he got older to saving humanity, you're exactly right. I mean, he became more ecumenical because he always he began to think that, that other religions might hold secrets that I don't see just from a Lakota point of view. And then this is where, this is how we know about Black Elk's vision, because this guy, he's a poet, American poet named John Neidhart, right. shows up at his Black Elk's house and says, you know, hey, I want to talk to you about the old ways. And then Black Elk, for some reason, because he doesn't really, hasn't really talked about his vision all that much, particularly to white people, says, you're the guy I'm going to tell my vision to. You're yeah, I know. And that's one of the big mysteries. Well, Neihart was already kind of known. I mean, this, okay, so Neihart meets Black Elk in 1930, and he was already kind of famous as a plains poet. He wrote these long, long, long epics about the chain, you know, the ending of the West and starting with the fur trappers and going all the way to the ghost dancers. And he had just written an epic about the, um, about the little big horn and about crazy horse. And like I said, I mean, because Black Elk was a holy man, he wasn't as well known as the chiefs, but rumors had started to get out about this um, second co- a cousin of crazy horse and, and who, you know, had been around during the little big horn and been around during wounded knee, Nyhart was coming with his own son away from a uh, poetry reading at some college. He goes, makes a detour to Pine Ridge goes to the agent, the government agent, and says, is there anybody here who, you know, was one of the old holy men who'd been around during the ghost dance? And the agent talks with some of the old Indian men there, and they said, well, there's this there's this guy by the name of Black Elk who was something of a holy man, and kind of directed him where to go. And so Nyhart, you know, without, and just out of, the, out of the blue, shows up in the middle of nowhere at Black Elk's home. And usually Black Elk kind of, like you said, kind of politely turned people away, but there was something about Nyhart that Black Elk liked. And Nyhart had been when he was younger, he'd been raised close to the Omaha Reservation and around Nebraska, and he traveled throughout the West, and he, he kind of knew the Native Americans, and he didn't rush the Native Americans in conversation. He wasn't, he wasn't impatient like Indians kind of knew whites to be, and he was also not dismissive of the idea of Indian religion or, you know, having visions or, you know, being in touch with the spirits. And some of that must have come off because Black Elk, they sat together for an afternoon for about five hours. And Black Elk, you know, finally said the equivalent of, I've got this vision. All my friends around me are dying. He, Black Elk was about 60 by then, you know, and I'm afraid that if I die, I'm going to lose the vision and I want to put my vision out to the world. 
and he felt com- comfortable with Nyhart. And so he basically, Black Elk basically said to Nyhart, come back in a year and I'll have a teaching space ready, which is kind of like a, a sacred hoop and a, and a teepee and everything. And I'll tell you my vision. And so Black Elk and Nyhart first met in 1930. And then Nyhart comes back with his two daughters one of whom knows shorthand in 1931. And you've got, you know, they're still, they're still in archives, like a month's worth of storytelling by Black Elk. And then Black Elk Speaks appeared as a book by William Morrow in 1932. And how was it received initially in the United States? Well, it was a little bit too strange for the, for the, for the public. I mean, the, the critics kind of liked it. They thought that it was an authentic peek into into the mind of a Native American holy man, but but it didn't do well. I mean, it went into remainders within about six months or so. I mean, even less than that. And it just kind of like disappeared from view. But there were people who liked it and who thought it was really something special. And then near the end of the 30s, Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, you know, the one who was very interested in like the universal unconscious and the power of dreams. He came to give a lecture on religion and psychology at Yale University, and somebody came and gave him a copy of Black Elk Speaks. He got all excited, and he went back to Germany. He went back to Switzerland thinking, I'm going to get this published in German for the Europeans, because the Europeans ever since um, Buffalo Bill had been there, they'd been absolutely in love with Native American culture. But then World War II came about. And so, you know, that kind of ended that. But then after the war, Jung tried again and he got the, he got Black Elk Speaks published in German in 1955. And then, as often happens, a European intellectual says something American is good, then then Americans kind of sit up and take notice of what's in their backyard. It was republished in English in 1961, the first edition. And then that's like the the hippie movement picked up on it. And that, that's sort of where that yeah, came. Yeah, that was the hippie movement. I, think, I mean, it was around for a while and it was gaining momentum. But then, you know, I think it was like 1968 that D. Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee comes out. And then all of a sudden, between Black Elk Speaks and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, you know, all of a sudden, like Black Elk enters New Age religion. I mean, he he he's um, he, he becomes a cultural commodity. He enters white American popular culture. I don't know if you ever saw the Dustin Hoffman movie Little Big Man, but the old chief who is Dustin Hoffman's mentor was modeled after Black Elk. And so in Black Elk Speaks since then has been, it's, uh, it's been translated into, I'd have to look it up, has been translated into lots of languages. And so after Black Elk Speaks got put out there, I mean, what did, what did Black Elk think about his vision as he came to the end of his life? Did he, did he, feel, did he still feel like a failed prophet? Because it seemed like all throughout his life, he felt like he never had it quite figured out. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Or did he feel like he saved his people somehow in the end? Well, I think he was of two minds. I mean, I think he always felt that he'd never saved his people, but near after after Black Elk Speaks came out, and remember he was 60 and he thought he was going to die, but he held on until he was like night until 1950. So like, you know, he was, he was much older by then. By that point, 
he had also become a preservationist. I mean, he wanted to preserve the old ways, the old religion and the old dances and the old iconography. And a lot of that was dying out. And at least among the Lakota, I mean, he was one of the main ones to preserve all that. And there was also, even back in the 1920s and 1930s, 1940s, I mean, there were still, even though they couldn't do so publicly, there were young men that that wanted to learn the old ways, that wanted to be holy men. Black Elk started to train them. In fact, one of the uh, medicine men who was present at Wounded Knee 2, you know, in 1973, when the government shot it out with the American Indian Movement, he had been trained under Black Elk. Black Elk was very important for the continuity of the uh, and the preservation of, of these old ways. And I think he understood that. And I think that when he died, he felt a certain peace about that. I mean, he seemed at peace when he died. So, I mean, what was your big takeaway after writing this book? My big takeaway, like, you know, what does it mean to be a holy man? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe like, well, I mean, I mean, sure, it changed you. I mean, changed the way you look. Yeah. At well, I mean, it's it. Well, it certainly did. I mean, you know, you certainly have an appreciation of other religious expressions, and you certainly have an ex- uh, an appreciation of what people go through on their own sort of spiritual quests. And I think that I was able to understand that a lot more. In fact, I have a friend who uh, who I've, I've had a friend. He's been a friend since junior high, and he has had like approaching blindness and stuff like that. And he's become increasingly mystical. And I never really understood what he was trying to do as he was faced with all these challenges. And after I read the book, I think I understood a lot more what he was what he was um, doing and going through. There's a lot more more understanding for me there. As far as what it takes to be holy, there's a couple of things that seem to and be holy and famous, like Black Elk or Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad. You've got to have a society which is changing in a really threatening way for people. Um, they want something new. And the main personal trait just seems to be endurance. I mean, endurance that as you go through so many bad things, it becomes a kind of wisdom, but I guess it's a kind of wisdom that based on patience and your own suffering or your own contact with other people's suffering and trying to help them. I mean, that's the main takeaway, I guess, I've got from that. I guess that's the main pattern that 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 I saw. Joe, this has been a a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, there are two books to learn more about Black Elk. I mean, okay, so so they can read my book. I mean, that's that's the biography, but they really should read the Nyhart Black Elk collaboration, Black Elk Speaks. They really should do that. And then, I mean, it's a beautiful book. It's really sad. And then if they really want to get into it, there is a transcription of Black Elk's interview with Nyhart that took place over a month. And it's called The Sixth Grandfather. And it's kind of difficult because it's a, it's an oral history and it's it's got all the catches. It's got all the, you know, all of the backtracks. It can, at times can be confusing. And so it's difficult reading. I wouldn't read it until after 
I read Black Elk Speaks and then maybe my book. But one thing that's really nice about that is that you see, since it's an oral history from Black Elk's words, you kind of get a picture straight into Black Elk's mind. So I would do that if you're really interested in it. And then, you know, if you want to read my other books, I mean, there I've got a website, www.joejacksonbooks.com. But this is the only book that I've done on Black Elk. Well, Joe Jackson, thanks for trying. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Joe Jackson. He's the author of the book, Black Elk, an American Visionary. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, joejacksonbooks.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash black elk. You can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.